Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with writer and filmmaker Matt Bissonnette about his fabulous new movie, Death of a Ladies Man. Welcome, Matt. Hey, John. Uh, hey. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is. I, I really think this is your. Uh, this is your best work yet. This is absolutely. Uh, I, I I've been trying for the last couple of weeks to explain to people what this movie is about. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not very. It's like trying to describe yeah. somebody like a dream that you had where, yeah. So then I was like flying on a cloud and then I was like hanging out with a care bear. And then I was like, it just, I mean, how would you describe this, um, I don't know. this movie? If you, if you find out, let me know. Um, it, it's funny because I, the movie turned out a, a bit stranger than I thought it would be. And when, we, when I was writing it, it was just uh, a story about a man and then his relationship with his kids and his relationship with his father. And as the addiction and the, the sort of mental, uh, you know, struggles kind of spun out, it got a little more um, odd and uh, kind of kept going in that direction. And yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't really know how to explain it. It, it, it. It's a drama. It's a comedy about life and death and family patterns sort of set to a soundtrack 
and then cracked open with the kind of uh, detrius. Like, let's say our main character was a ship and he had just run into an iceberg and everything below came bobbling up to the surface and floated around in the St. Lawrence. That's kind of what the movie is a little bit like. <laughs> yeah, I, tried, I was explaining to somebody, I said, okay, if you want to, in microcosm, understand what this movie is about or get, get an idea of the flavor. It's, uh, it's just, you know, some movies are very easy to, and, and the same thing goes for books. And they, sometimes they're very easy to sort of summarize in a, in a paragraph, you know, that, and reviewers love that when it's very easy to sure. sort of, well, yes, it's this, this, but, you know, so you, there's a scene in uh, this one brief scene where there, it looks like there's these three game of Thrones dragons flying around downtown Montreal and like destroying the city by fire. But then like you actually look carefully and they're giant Canada geese. <laughs> they're blowing like, yeah i mean it's just so yeah. completely completely it feels like um like a, a fever dream or, and, and you I, ask yourself why hasn't someone done that before you know <laughs> yeah. i i don't think i asked that at all I think, okay. you know <laughs> there's some details where you're like okay that is just so completely original but i think you know, yeah. nobody would even I mean, where yeah. did you come up with that it just seemed like the right bird to burn down montreal <laughs> you know what i mean it's just, yeah when you're it's typing it's just like okay what bird is this gonna be and i go yeah okay <laughs> you know and there's you know it also like the, you know one of the early scenes um which i think it's in the trailer but it has to be seen where they they come out and I guess you, the Canadians were charging too much for the rights or something like that. So it's like a Hamilton. But, um, and the, the hockey players come out and they they break into this figure skating. <laughs> They're all like yeah. leaping over. Yeah. Just, I laughed so hard uh, during that. I had to actually stop the scene and rewind and watch it again. Because <laughs> yeah. I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, yeah, I mean that just and it's something for our. For, I know we have listeners all over the world, but for those of um, just one of the aspects of this movie is that if you're a Montrealer, and specifically if you're an Anglo Montrealer, a lot of this movie feels like an inside joke. I mean, a little bit, you know, like kind of. I mean, I you know, I think a lot of movies are like that, but you hope the particular gets universal, if you know what I mean. Like I, I know exactly what you mean. I yeah. think that, you know, a lot of works of art that I think are very universal and powerful are very particular. And it's something, you know, the longer I do this, the more I kind of come to realize you only know what you know. I mean, it sounds so simplistic and obvious, but, you know, I grew up in Montreal. That's really the only growing up place I know. I could make up another one. Like I could pretend I grew up in an Akron, but why, yeah. would you, why would you, you know, why would I, why would I bother? There's someone in Akron who's doing a great job of doing that, you know? And I think you just, you, you the, and I think it's also, you know, I've been away from Montreal for, and I go back, my mom lives there and I, you know, I've got a bunch of friends. It's been 25, maybe 30 years since I've lived there. And there's a kind of distance that I can, makes me very comfortable 
in 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 returning to it. Do you know if, if that makes any sense? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, well, Leonard Cohen said that about Montreal. He said he would always come back here to renew all of his neuroses. <laughs> like it, was the, it was the place where you go to sort of ground yourself, uh, not just in stability, but in like your your instability, in like everything that's wrong with you. Yeah, you know, all of your uh, uh, what was that? Wonderful line uh, from the Neil Young song where he says, "There is a there is a town in North Ontario. All of my changes are there." Yeah, sure. You know, like like there is uh, there is that sense of uh, theorized about this in studying Alzheimer's patients and people with dementia and various other kinds of that the place where you live. And even more than just play, you see this in James Joyce, Dubliners, and all of his novel, and all of his work, and everybody. But the place where you live when you're a kid, it actually becomes almost like a like a like a grid or a piece of graph paper, and you grab you you put on you plot all of your future experiences onto that initial grid, right? And so wherever you go, you're still to some extent mapping it on you know whatever Dublin or NDG or Montreal, you know, Montreal, wherever you grew up. So it is actually really important if you want to get to some uh, deep, deep issues. And so you'll see this with apparently like uh, patients that are um, in real decline, like the main character in Death of a Ladies Man, uh, they will forget languages. So like my, my friend Janice, her one of her really close friends when he was uh, dying of Alzheimer's, he he had learned English and French um, when he was, I don't know, I think in his late teens or 20s, but his mother tongue was Polish. And he gradually, like peeling skin, you know, layers off of an onion, he gradually lost the ability to speak French and then English. And so Janice was one of his best friends in the world, and he couldn't communicate with her anymore because he could only speak Polish. So he's at the Montreal General uh, dying and he had to speak to you know one of his best friends through a translator right and he also forgot he gradually forgot uh, all the other cities that he had lived in and how to get around and he just remembered to get around you know whatever the city in Poland that he so there is something really really deep psychic you know that going back to as you put it like what you know is in a sense going back to some sort of, I don't know, something very essential. But sure, because you know that that where you grew up is like is a member of your family, and it's the same sort of thing. We talked a little bit about this. You're only ever going to have one family, no matter yeah. what you, what how you feel about it. That's that's just the way it's going to be. The country is the same kind of thing. It, it it's just an interesting thing. You if it's sort of, and again, it's not that deep a point, but the ability to think outside of what you know is actually kind of impossible in a certain kind of way because you only know what you know. And for a long time, I was sort of wondering about that. Like, you know, let's think of something new. And then I, I sort of had a minor epiphany whenever. And just like, you no, know, there's no, there's no other thing out there. This is kind of what you've got. And that's interesting. And you kind of, you know, double down and, trying to find out what's there um, yeah 
there's a, a really good book I read a couple of years ago. My 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 son Tristan actually recommended it to me, but it's uh, called Surfaces and Essences, and it's mm-hmm. uh, analogy as fuel and fire of thinking. And it's just an absolutely like mind blowing book. But he basically mm-hmm. makes the same point that you're making. But but uh, the authors, well, it's two guys actually. Uh, but Hofstadter's the one I'm more familiar with. But he says that that it's actually not a superficial point. It's it's not an obvious point, and that we think uh, by by way of analogies. So if I'm, I mean, the, the classic example I always tell my students is like, if I'm if I'm on a cell phone with you, and I'm like, you know, hanging out on like a beach in Indonesia somewhere, mm-hmm. and I'm like drinking this drink with an umbrella in it, and I'm like starting to trip or something like that, mm-hmm. and I'm talking to you, and you're like. Like it's so fucking amazing here. You gotta come at it. It's so amazing. And you're like, okay, so what is it? You know, in this drink, it's the best thing I've ever had. And and it basically it's it's made out of some kind of fruits that you and I have never heard of before. It's well, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna say, well, it has kind of like the tangy taste of pineapple. Yeah, but it's got a smooth thing going on that's kind of like a banana. And then there's an extra aftertaste, which sort of tastes like a like a tangerine. So I'm going to take like what you already know, what I already know, and I'm, I'm going to try and understand the new with reference to the old. So Mm -hmm. you, you, you sort of going back to family and city that you, to understand everything makes perfect sense. Right. But if if you don't have that, uh, that basic um, substance to reason analogically from, like you say, you literally cannot think that thought, right? So if you've never experienced sharp or hard or soft or, you know, wet, yeah. nobody can explain that to you. Totally. And yeah, it, it, that takes a little while to grasp, at least if you're, you're a bit slow like me. And you, you sort of, you start writing when you're younger and you're, you're thinking, like, oh, I, I should make something up. <laughs> you know, I should use like, my imagination right now, you know? And you're kind of like... And you, you, you try that a couple of times, and then you're like, "Oh no!" I'm, you know, it's more interesting to take this shovel and you know, stand on this plot of land that I got bequeathed, and, and just start digging down into there, and just sort of seeing what's in there. So, yeah. anyhow, well, yeah. So the you have you know one of the uh, one of the early scenes which I found very telling is yeah the woman comes out at the hockey game and. Say, so would everybody please stand and remove your hats to sing the national anthem? And rather than singing the national anthem, uh, she goes right into uh, a Leonard Cohen song, you know, Bird on a Wire. Uh, what, what, what was going on? That felt very, very uh, purposeful to me. What, what were you going for there? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't remember how I thought of the idea for the, the hockey ice dance but sort of once that idea started i wanted to and i guess i think this is also maybe not living in canada anymore i was like what's the most iconic possible canadian thing that you can do in this moment and it's sort of to have hockey players dance to this leonard cohen song and then i said what song of his is the closest to a national anthem and i feared it it would be bird on the wire i just want to say one more thing about that scene is uh that was only by the good graces of, um, of a guy I grew up with, Nick Farkas, who uh, now runs Evanco and, and books all the shows for the forum and for the, you know, uh, for the Little Vowel Center. 
because we would have never have been able to, to shoot that. I mean, that, that scene alone, I think cost a hundred thousand dollars if you paid for it and they let us do it for, you know, just a pittance compared to that. And, um, that's just sort of one of the great things about coming home is that you can do things there that you'd never be able to do, you know, out in the real world. Um, and it's just funny, you know, next a guy that I grew up with and he started booking shows, you know, at church basements, you know, you go see Husker do or whatever. And then, you know, yeah. 25 years later, and he's like, you're going, Hey, can I borrow your big, huge arena? <laughs> you know, <laughs> can I borrow your fancy arena because I want some guys to do some, you know, to dress up as a bunch of Canadians or, you know, their farm team and do some figure skating. And he's like, okay, sure. Yeah. That sounds all right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking that often because I'm sure you, you've grown up with this just as much as I have, but there is this kind of insecurity that you have growing up uh, and it's just multiplied if you're sort of a minority within a minority within a minority, like mm-hmm. in, in Canada and always like, you know, I could tell, it was a Canadian TV show or film usually within the first couple of seconds because the production value was low. The sound yeah. was off. The lighting yeah. sucked. The acting was like wooden and embarrassing. And like, and yet this, this movie, um, it's just, you've got all these like famous actors that I've seen in a million things. You've got these. And I kept thinking like, how did he get the money to, get all these like Gabriel Byrne. Like, how did you get that guy? He just seems like he would be so expensive. You know, not really. I mean, he, I sent him, you know, we, we got Gabriel involved the old fashioned way. We sent him the script and he liked it. And then he and I had lunch in New York and we talked for two or three hours. And there's just stuff in the movie that he was interested in. He started, he's interested in the immigrant experience. He's interested in uh, families uh, where there's a missing parent. Uh, he's interested in addiction. He's interested in people who don't fulfill their artistic dreams. You know, all those kind of themes that are sort of bubbling on. He's, he's quite interested in, you know, what, what masculinity means. Is this sort of a kind of thing? And you know, getting back to the ice dancing, you know, a, a lot of the movie, and again, the movie's not about anything. There's no message to deliver. But obviously when it's about, you know, death of a ladies, man, it's about, you know, deaths of different kinds of masculinity or just asking questions about them or making fun of them or just presenting them in a certain kind of way because um you know we're obviously I mean, we've always been in a time period to ask those questions probably but more than ever i think it's um it's incumbent on dudes to uh, uh you know do a little work there have a look at things uh pull them out you know, uh, cut them up, make some fun, and uh, <laughs> see what comes out of it. If you, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely got that. Uh, it's got that feel of you know the guy who's who's still at you know grumpy, still at like the bar, who's in his who's kind of way too old to be doing X Y Z. But then there's also that very that very Leonard Cohen like quality, which I think is something that. Um, very often when I've tried to talk to, especially Americans about this, they just they kind of, they, it's something that they seem to miss very often about Leonard Cohen. And that's that he saw excess, you know, whether it be kind of excess through, through drinking, through drugs, through sex, through, he saw excess, not um, as a, 
it just purely as kind of recreation or as like escape, but as um, a, a way to find transcendence that somehow you could, you know, in the same way that by denying the senses, like an ascetic, you know, going and fasting and praying and you know, giving up all these things for Lent or whatever, for your soul or like, rather than that, in the same way that by denying the pleasures of the flesh, as it were, uh, you could find transcendence that by indulging them to excess, that was also a pathway to transcendence. And it seems like in the movie, you're, um, you know, I couldn't help think, you know, to what extent is this like a little bit autobiography in terms of what's been going on um, in your life. In, um, but it seems like it's sort of playing around with whether that is actually you know, what are the limitations or advantages of that, that pathway to trying to find transcendence? Sure, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that Cohen, I mean, I, I think that's in his work. I have no idea about his personal life, but I think in his work that's, you know, that's apparent. But I think he was also aware that that might not work. And I think the one thing about, you know, trying to uh, achieve transcendence through excess you might only know that it doesn't work if you try it. Um, and let me put it this way. Let's say when I was 20, there's a lot of things I wanted to do in that area, in the area of excess. Yeah. When I'm 55, there are none. So for whatever <laughs> reason. Now, 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 whether it's because I did them, and so I found out it didn't really, you know, didn't at least didn't work particularly for me, or I just got old. I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. But I do know that I don't have that feeling anymore. We know what's that line in the song Death of the Ladies and um, the art of longing is over and it's never coming back. And I think he was sort of aware of that. Do you know what I mean? I think he was, he, yeah. He, you know, the other thing I don't think a lot of Americans get about Cohen is essentially a stand up comedian. Uh, yes. you, know, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? And yep. he was aware that there was a joke to everything and that none of this was that serious. Do you know, in yeah. a way that you don't see in other people that are, you know, I mean, that's why people understand his, to the extent that there's the darkness in his work, people understand it to, to not be uh, all encompassing and that there's always a funny part to even the most you know, difficult song that he has. Well, yeah, there's a crack in everything, right? Yeah. There's like yeah. there's, always... there's a wise crack in everything. If you know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hurt my cousin one of my cousins uh, her and her husband lived in this uh, buddhist community mount baldy in california sure. which and Lan cohen was you know studying with the roshi and stuff like that for a number of years and leonard cohen actually uh, presided over her her wedding to uh, all this stuff but i mean she she told me all these like really funny stories about leonard cohen and <clears throat> one was um they were they were talking about Plato and uh, and and Leonard Cohen said his said his favorite line from Plato's Republic was uh, in the beginning of the dialogue when there's a bunch of old men sitting around and they're talking about like their lives and regrets and things like that and, and one of the guys says to one of the other guys he says like you know well do you miss like do you miss uh, Eros? Like, do you miss, like, basically, I guess what we would say, like, high testosterone being, like, really having lots of uh, hard-ons and energy and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Do you miss that? And the 
the other old guy goes, oh, God, that tyrant. Eros, I'm so <laughs> happy to be done with that asshole. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to be done with that tyrant. And Blair Code said that was his favorite. <laughs> he was favorite because he said, yeah, I just feel like, you know, when I got um, older, these these kind of cravings and desires that would just get me into so much fucking trouble all the time. And would it was so nice to, to for those voices to be quieter and more of a whisper than screaming in your ear all the time. Yeah. And I felt like that was so much in this movie. Right. This guy is like he hasn't he hasn't sort of come to terms with moving into a different stage of the life course. He's still, you know, trying to replay again and again another movie that is done. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very correct. I think that's sort of uh, the essence of that character. He's an awfully slow learner. Um, you know, there's there's a final title card, and I think we you know. It, it, I think it, it says, um, "In which a man finally understands." And when I first put that in, and I had, I had to say, "What in which a man fucking finally understands?" And they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me keep it because <laughs> they they would get too complicated for the foreign edit, and maybe it, it shouldn't have been kept anyways. But you know, I, to me at least, and that's just my view of the film, is it's like, of course he should be over this and you know that that's sort of and i think that's very much in the film um and whether you know that's you know i've known a lot of slow learners in my life so i guess <laughs> you know <laughs> well you're talking you're talking to one I'm a, yeah. i've been a slow learner about um but but i have noticed maybe this is just sort of convenient and self-congratulatory but i i have noticed something that in general Slow learners, I think, um, once they do learn a lesson, they they really learn it, <laughs> and they know it. They know it like in their bones, and they can they know it at three o'clock in the morning. They 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 don't forget it as easily. And people who are people who are very quick studies, uh, they often forget what they learn <laughs> just as fast. Right? But maybe that's just you know, maybe that's just self congratulation. But to what extent do you? Um, I mean, I know this is obviously it's a product of the imagination and there's all sorts of stuff, but you, this is your baby. You wrote it, you directed it, you know, all that stuff. So to what extent do you relate to this character? Is this, is this guy like, who is he? You know, you? It, it, honestly, and this might sound funny, I relate more to the father character, to, to be honest. <laughs> Seriously, when I, when I was writing it, I was, I was, I was a, you know, I was a, da- a single dad. So the, a lot of my headspace was kind of in about, you know, the relationship of a father to, to a son. So in a weird way, you know, I looked to the Gabriel character as my son, which is kind of funny. But, I, but, but you know, that said, uh, I, I do very much relate to the, you know, the, the Gabriel character. Uh, you know, I, I'm seven, I'm seven years sober. Uh, I, you know, have been through a lot of that kind of stuff. And rather than deliver any message, I just kind of wanted to make a movie that sort of acknowledged the, you know, both sides of the coin. Yeah. You know, as that coin's flipping. So let's say that, that, that his coin is flipping and you're sort of seeing both sides, but it's, it's arcing up and it's on its way down uh, as it's coming back down. So 
So yeah, that's uh, you know that explains that explains a bit of dialogue that that I loved, but I was a little bit sort of mystified where he's talking to his dad. It's like I think it's soon after he's just gone to Ireland to try and figure get his figure his shit out, and he's sitting there and he asks um, he asks his father. He says like, so why did mom leave? Like why did mom leave us? Why did she leave you? And uh, his dad says, who's, of course, a hallucination, he says, uh, that's a good question, right? And then he turns around and he goes, you're a shitty ghost. <laughs> like, you're a lame shitty yeah. ghost. Like, aren't you supposed to know stuff? And he's like, well, you know, ghosts are like people. We know some things, don't know others. Like, I, it was just such a wonderful piece of dialogue. But I didn't, now I understand it. So this is you sort of having a conversation with your uh, an earlier version of yourself. Completely. You know, and I, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, think, I think everything, I mean, isn't every sort of thing you do a conversation with various parts of your, uh, you know, whatever. Person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or your, or your yeah. So for, yeah, definitely without a doubt. Um, yeah. I had in, in my mind when I saw that scene for, I think the third time, um, the, I didn't have a Leonard Cohen song playing in my head. I had a, a Bob Dylan song, you know, where he, he says, like, I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Sure. I mean, like, I, when I was yeah. younger, I knew everything. Yeah. <laughs> and now, I, now I'm just a, like a lame ghost that doesn't uh, knows how much I don't know, you know? Yeah, well, that's, that's the, beauty of get, <laughs> the beauty of getting older is figuring out how stupid you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what has been, I'm, uh, I don't really read, like, reviews of, of books and movies and stuff like that. And that's because I, I don't know if you've found this, but I find that the, the general quality of reviews has just declined so dramatically in the last 20 years. Like in the nineties, I remember like almost, even if I disagreed with the review, usually like reviews of books or movies, they were just so smart. Like you could tell they really, paid attention to it they like thought about it a lot and if they hated it they hated it intelligently and increasingly now um most book reviews by the time i get to the end i i get the impression that the person hasn't even read the book or they haven't even seen the movie like they so i i don't really pay attention to them but i'm curious what has been the so far the critical reception of this movie i mean i think generally people seem to like it like it's it yeah it's it's a hundred percent on the Rotten Tomatoes. It won't be forever because there'll be other reviews, but it, it, it's been well received. It's it's interesting though. I I, I know what you say about um, criticism these days. You know, because I work pr- particularly in movies, and I'm not I'm not talking about I'm not talking about other reviews of this film. But generally, when I I see reviews now, or even what people write online when they watch movies, they they often seem upset that the movie didn't do something they would wanted it to do or that they thought it should do you know like there's they have an idea they know, yep there's an idea of, a, of what a movie is and it's interesting because i think we've been watching them now you know for whatever 80 90 years and i think we're getting more indoctrinated into this idea of you know a movie's like a racehorse or it's like a race car and it should do these very specific things and when it does those things then I will feel good. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? And, oh, I know exactly. What you mean. And, 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 and I, and I just, I can't get behind that. I mean, I, for various reasons from how I grew up, 
I've always kind of been a little ambivalent or suspicious about stories. You know, I mean, I like them, I love them, I'm steeped in them, but I kind of don't believe them. Like, I'm not that sold on the whole thing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, so you, when you read the reviews, often you sort of like the person's upset because it didn't, you know, in their opinion, do jump through this hoop properly, the hoop that they would have liked it to jump through, and then they would have felt, you know, whatever, a, a better experience. And I'm always, I don't have that experience with movies. Like, I just don't feel that way when I watch them. I'm sort of more kind of interested in like, what's the tone? What's, you know, just, just, just even trying to understand what the person's trying to do. Like, what the hell is this supposed to be? What's going on here? And, you know, is that interesting? Is engaging? You know, is it, is it different? Um, are sort of the things that I'm kind of, you know, looking for. So that's a long winded answer. To, to your question. Eh? You know, once in a while you read a review, I actually don't read them very much to tell you the truth. I kind of, when they send them to you, they write at the top positive or negative. So you know whether it's good or bad. And as if that's the most important criteria, it's completely well, not. <laughs> but, it, but the only time it is because, you know, we're also just trying to sell it. So at a yeah. certain point, I'm more just like, oh, well, that get more people to watch it. You know, that's, and, and then once in a while, Someone will say, hey, this is a really good review. And I think uh, Catherine Monk wrote a pretty good review of this one that I read that she understood um, that the movie was not really about Leonard Cohen, uh, that Leonard Cohen was sort of a character within the film. But the, the movie was about this particular character and a particular kind of masculinity and a particular series of consequences that would probably arrive from pursuing a certain kind of life. And what ideas you may or may not draw draw from that and sort of how that kind of slotted into you know the the distance we're traveling from the 70s to right now in terms of where people are at and where they might be what they might be thinking about yeah you know you know that's sort of like you're like and what's you know just to keep talking for so much longer what's always kind of interesting about that is because the movie any movie you make or any book you write, as you know, always stays the same. It never yeah. changes. Someone will watch it. And every once in a while, someone will, their insight will be like, oh, and you go, oh, that's what I thought I was doing. So you're kind of like going, well, if one person got it, do you know what I mean? I, it, I, it, I might have been correct. It, does that make any sense? You know, oh, because, no, it, absolutely. Know, absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter if someone misunderstands it. That's not, that is kind of neither here nor there because, you know, unless you're going to, sit beside every person who watches it and then try to explain what you were doing. <laughs> um, but it's always kind of interesting when you, when your idea of what you thought you were doing lines up with someone else's and you're always kind of, oh, that's kind of, that's, that's, that's funny that the, that, that lined up. So. Yeah. I, there's two things that two parallels I saw uh, between this, this movie. One was with um, uh, Umberto Eco's uh, novel Foucault's Pendulum. And he, He's there. You know, I've not read. I'll, I'll 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 start off the top. Yeah, of it's well, it's it's me. It's more just the way it's conceived. Like Echo, he said that um, he goes. You know, I spent a long time trying to create fiction that would appeal to as many people as possible, and I, I achieved like a certain amount of success mm-hmm. uh, doing that, modest success. But he goes. I actually, things really took off and I started to do extremely well when I just 
like started producing the most self-indulgent stuff possible. Like, and he said, you know, I, he goes, when I wrote Foucault's Pendulum, I legitimately thought it was just one giant inside joke. And I thought that there were maybe two people in the world that would really get it. And that, is, and that is the novel that ended up being like a bestseller and ended up doing really, really well. And so he, he said it was a kind of a lesson, uh, a lesson there that sort of going back to what you said earlier, that when you, when you talk with a sufficient complexity and nuance about what you really know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it somehow opens out into the universal. It's like you go through this little peephole and, on the other side is, uh, you know, as, as Sam Harris puts it, you reach into your pocket and pull out the Andromeda galaxy. Right. <laughs> it's just like something completely yeah, yeah, yeah. unexpected, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And the other parallel was to my, uh, you know, if, if your movie, Death of a Ladies Man, is a, is a kind of love letter to Montreal, there's uh, the movie Garden State by Zach Braff mm-hmm. um, is sort of love letter to New Jersey. And it's um, it's my wife's favorite movie. She's from New Jersey. Right. But one of the things that is so much fun about uh, the movie Garden State and uh, is very, very, I encourage all of our uh, listeners to uh, go to, I, I, I watched your movie on Google Play. I don't know if if it's available in other places elsewhere. But, but anyway, one of the things I really liked uh, about Garden State is that it's so surprising and unexpected. And there's all these, like, it doesn't just, uh, like you put it, the, the race car or the racehorse where everything is, uh, you know, exactly in the usual place. I saw an interview with him after, I don't know, maybe a, a year or two after the movie came out. And they, one of the, the interviewer asked him about this, you know, how is this so kind of unexpected and strange? And he, I was wondering if you'd respond to this. He, he said, well, he goes, there are these books that have become um, prescriptive Bibles, which tell you how to write a script. And this is what's supposed to happen one third in. And this is what's supposed to happen. And there's this, there's this formula for script writing and it's become so rigid and you know, sort of hegemonic that, if you try and get a movie made um, that deviates from that script in in a key way, uh, it, it just won't get made. You won't get money. You won't get funding. You won't get. Uh, he said the only reason I was able to make this movie is because I already I was already famous and I already had connections and people like Danny DeVito and stuff like that were willing to bankroll um, the movie and and let let me do it. Um, the way I wanted to do it. So do you think that maybe the reason why so many movies have become formulaic is because like the industry has sort of decided that this is what has to happen or? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, they're, 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 they're expensive to make. So they're, they're not, they're, they're in some ways the perfect capitalist art form because they're very capital intensive. They're probably the most capital intensive art form ever. Well, they definitely are. There's no art form that is as expensive as a, as a motion picture, particularly bigger movies. Um, and I think you you see it. You know, the, the the higher up you go to the food chain, the more formulaic in a way the film the films get. Um, so they're an odd kind of metaphor, you know, for uh, for how art operates in our society. And without a doubt, and you know, I think the one thing 
I'll just say in defense of the people who bankrolled them, is if everyone knew from looking at 90 or 100 pages of script what was going to be a good film, there wouldn't be any bad movies. But obviously, there, there are quite you know a lot of them. And it's a very hard, it's, 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 it's an interesting art form in that kind of way because for all the planning and all the books and everything, no one really has been able to figure it out. Um, so there's a reliance on a certain kind of template because at least then you've got something to go on. But they're, they're, they are a magical thing. That's kind of why I enjoy cinema so much. There is an odd magic to the art form. I mean, it, 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 if, you if you step back and you look at it objectively, and you think, well, what is, how, how does this art form operate? Well, someone sits in a room and he makes things up. And then he gets other people to pretend to be the people that he made up. And then they photograph them doing that. And then they put it all together. And then they go sit in a dark room and they watch those made up things projected on the wall. And then the people who they hired to say those words... They then deify them and turn them into the most, you know, important <laughs> people in their world. And if it's so ridiculous, you know what I mean? Just the whole kind of thing, the whole sort of way it operates is so odd. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know. I find it kind of fascinating, but it's it, it, it's an it's a it, it's it's a very it's an an art form that's a great paradox in, in some ways because it's so beautiful and sublime. And it's so ridiculous and, and, and inane at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you, yeah. if you look at a world teetering on the brink of extinction and large segments of the population decide it's a good idea to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to make movies about the other people flying around in, in, in tight suits. Like, that's the response. That's the response to, to, to the end of time. You know, and you start going like, and I'm working in this medium. Like, it, it's, uh, it's. Well, we're storytellers. We're yeah. storytellers, yeah. right? Yeah. We, like, yeah. that's, yeah. that's yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely key. We've been doing it since the beginning sure. of time. I mean, uh, what, what medium we, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, yeah. the medium we choose, though, I think is, is really interesting. Like, mm -hmm. I, I remember Leonard Cohen said once that the reason why he switched from poetry to the music, the songs and recording, um, he, did he actually preferred poetry in, in many ways, but he realized, okay, well, you know, I want, at a fundamental level, I want to, I want to, I want to reach as many people as possible. Like I want to mm -hmm. kind of, and he realized that if he kept writing poetry, he would only be read by, you know, because there's the vast majority of the population has absolutely no interest in poetry. They will never read a poetry book. They just so even if you win like whatever the fuck like Canadian book award that nobody cares about, like nobody. So he said, if I switch into songs, then now my words can reach like way more people. And uh, Matthew Hayes, who was the movie critic sure. for the the Mirror for years, and um, he's a friend of mine. He's a film yeah. critic, film prof, and he said when we were talking about this, he said, yeah, you know, people talk about how novels, like so many novels suck now. And they, and he said, but that's because everybody who's really good at writing fiction is 
is writing for Netflix or they're making movies or HBO. Like it's, it's, it's only like, you know, the best poets are doing hip hop or writing like they're, they're making music. They're not writing poetry books. And the best uh, fiction writers are writing screenplays. They're not writing novels. And the reason is, is Leonard Cohen's reason. It's because this is how you actually reach way more people. You know, it's, an, it's a medium that's more accessible to, to lots of people. Right? I mean, do, do you think, is that sort of go into your, because I know you, you have, you wrote, which I love, by the way, Smashed Against the Punk Rock, which is, a, yeah. so you have written novels, but um, I mean, why do you write screenplays instead of novels? You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I think part of that, I mean, I think there's this idea that you can reach more people. I don't know if that's true because there are so many films now and it's sort of so difficult to, uh, to sort of break through. But it, it honestly is more sort of intuitive than that. It just, it's been more often when I think of what to do next, the idea that comes up just happens to be a movie. You know, during COVID, I, I wrote another short novel that's sort of kind of quite strange. I'm just trying oh, to, wow. whether, yeah, whether it's worth anything. You know, it, it's 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 more like a kind of like Animal Farm meets The Hobbit. Uh, okay. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of quite strange. <laughs> no idea why I did it, and it just sort of came out. I'm like, oh my god, what is this? Anyhow, um, but generally speaking, it's it just been that way. It's just when I sat down to do the next thing the story seems to come out in pictures and, and in sort of in, in, in the form of a movie. Um, but I think there also, there is that feeling that, you know, you might be able to, to reach more people. Um, and I just really, uh, the thing that I really liked about film when I did the first one, when I did the first time with my, with my friend Steve, um, was just combining pictures and music and, and, um, and story. There's just something about that process that I really enjoy. Uh, you know, I like photography and I really like music. And it's awfully difficult to get photography and music into a book. You know, Michael Andache maybe got, got there a couple of times, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty tough thing to do. So you just, you just answered yet another of the questions I had written down here that I wanted to ask you. Oh, really? <laughs> but that's it. Yeah, you, just, you inadvertently answered it. Because yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that because. The, the movie feels, it, it feels like it has to, as, to a large extent, the sensibility of a photographer. I mean, it obviously is, because there is, like, the scenes are just, like, the composition is just beautiful. And it's, it's sort of, obviously, it's, it's moving pictures, right? It's a, it's a movie, but, but a lot of it has that, like, okay, for instance, a perfect example when he first gets to Ireland um, and he goes in and he meets uh, Charlotte, uh, Charlotte and, she, he's, and she's there in the store and she's reading Leonard Cohen's uh, Beautiful Losers. And just like, if you, if you pause, and I encourage our listeners to do this, just pause on that scene and look at the composition. It's like absolutely beautiful. Like all the, everything around her and what's in the scene and the colors all... So, so you are into photography. I didn't know that. Yeah, totally. You know, I think in, in part of, you know, uh, making movies is the first one I was super, like very, was like almost the dominant concern. And the farther along you go, like it's still a really big part, but you get a little more, 
interested. Are you talking about the Who Loves the Sun or Passenger Side? No, uh, no I'm talking about uh, uh, Looking for Leonard, the very first one. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. I've never seen that. Oh, I'll send you a copy. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like it's super formal, like it's super, super interested in, in photography. And, um, you know, the more you do it, you, you do want people to really connect emotionally. I think that's kind of the further along you go. And uh, that's just my experience kind of working in, in a narrative form. You kind of want um, for the emotion and the tone and the idea that you're trying to get across to be expressed in the simplest way that you can uh, yeah. in, the, in the hopes that it gets through. You know, I mean, I was talking about before, like that you can't really control it, but you, you do want, you, you're always, there's a feeling you have when you make something, you know what I mean? There's a feeling inside you as you're making it. And I assume what you're doing is you're trying to get the person who watches it to feel that feeling because <laughs> you think it's, you know, you, there's a, you think it's a feeling worth feeling or a thought worth having. So that, that's, that's gotta be the goal. I mean, uh, it's funny, we were talking about this before, I'm just reading, I'm reading the last Carlo book, the book six, and he talks yeah. a little bit about, uh, you know, how narrative works, and he says, well, you know, the, the goal has to be to translate or to broadcast whatever your inner reality is, and at the furthest point of that um, spectrum is, is, is something akin, almost close to mental illness, where you're so fixated on your particular worldview that it's not accessible to anybody else. And as you move across the spectrum, you get eventually to a Harlequin romance where your concern has nothing to do with your own personal experience. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. only with a formula and somewhere along that spectrum, all works of art are going to sort of fall into them. You know, so you're, when you're making, you're sort of going, well, what's this idea I'm trying to express and what, how can I express it in a way that, you know, that I think people will get it. And that that's where I, you also sort of run into difficult because maybe the idea that you think is accessible is perhaps not accessible. If you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I know exactly. There's this wonderful, yeah. There's this wonderful scene. There's always a little scene. nuance. <laughs> yeah. There's this wonderful scene in that documentary, um, The Store, The Comedy Store, mm -hmm. which is all about like, kind of the history of the comedy store and stand okay. modern stand-up comic. And right. there's uh, Louis C.K., uh, there's... Joe Rogan and a bunch of other like stand-up mm. comedians and they're talking about what comedy is and they make really really similar point to to what uh, you're saying they say well you know it's really just like any kind of um, sort of fiction it's it's a kind of collective hypnosis and you're trying to put a spell on the on the audience and you're trying to get them and the only way it's going to work is if you can get everybody to see just for a moment to see the world exactly the way you're seeing it mm -hmm. and if they see it from the perspective they're gonna fucking laugh their asses off or or if you're trying to say like a story that's very sad they're gonna cry or they're going to you know feel horrible despair or elation or and that's yeah i mean i i completely buy that that's that's what you're doing i, I guess just what seems to be, you know how like, when you're speaking a foreign language that you don't speak very well, and people will that's just sort what, of that's, paper. That's just what filmmaking's like. You're speaking a foreign language that you don't <laughs> speak very well. That's 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 movie making. <laughs> people people will often like if they're speaking a language they don't speak well, they'll they'll like mumble or they'll speak yeah. really fast as a way of like paper papering over sure. the fact that they really don't know how to pronounce that word or that. Sure. 
And I think when you're making movies, there's always a temptation that because it's it's such a you know as McLuhan would put like such a hot uh, medium and it's so it's so kind of all encompassing. There's a tendency often to sort of lean on that like a crutch and to mumble through scenes um, in in a way and sort of cheat and rely sure. on that. Whereas like for you know one of the things I really liked about Death of the Ladies Man is that. There's this photographer's sensibility where you don't mumble over any scene. Like you, it's it's a it's a scene that that can work if you freeze it or if you go in slow motion. You know, whereas like some things can look good as long as they're moving fast, but as soon as you pause it a minute, you're like, yeah, that's actually kind of a shitty setup. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, what, what what did Bukowski say? One good word after another. That's uh, <laughs> You mentioned a book before that I've never heard of before. You said you're reading the sixth book of it. Oh, what is my that? struggle. My, you know, Carl of Nascard, my struggle. No, oh, I'm just okay. looking it up right now. My okay. soul. Uh, so tell me about it. It's uh, this is a Norwegian guy, and he wrote a six book. I oh my god, that guy's intense looking. Yeah, yeah. He looks like something out of Vikings or Game yeah. of Thrones. Anyways. <laughs> It's just about his daily life. So it'll be like 150 pages about going to a party when he was 15. And it's, it's, it's really quite engaging. It's, 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 you know, it's a fairly complicated book in a kind of way, but in another way, it's just, it's like Proust. It's someone to the best of their ability trying to record what they perceive to be the exact reality of their life in its day to day, moment to moment um, passage. And then uh, put it out to us and have us read it. And sort of, and it's it, because it, it often it grapples with the thing that even by doing that, it's still a million miles away from the actual reality of his life. You know what I mean? Like there's an impossibility yeah. to record reality, but maybe it's a bit closer. Anyways, it's it's an interesting book. It's a, it's a long read. I mean, you know, there's yeah, I'm looking a year. It's, a, <laughs> it's like it's a year long endeavor kind of thing. So six um, autobiographical novels edited yeah. between 2009 and 2011. That's wow. I will yeah. uh, I will check that out. So it's so it, it the same time. And so, what do you when you read something like that? What does what do you take away from that as a as a filmmaker? Um, you know, I think you're always trying to, like I said, express the idea or the feeling that's inside you. And sometimes that might be close to your own life. And sometimes it might not be, you know, uh, but can still express some ideas that are, that are or feelings that are, that are sort of resonating with you. Um, yeah. That's always got to be the goal. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. Was I, the interesting thing about a movie, you know, just picking on something you were talking about, you know, as a hot medium or a medium that you experience, uh, so quickly in a kind of way. And the thing that's interesting about films is when they work, they are very enjoyable. But then when they don't work, people find them irritating or, or they get angry at them. And it, it, they're just an, it, it's a very interesting thing because they, they operate in such a short period of time for a narrative. You know, for a, plays are kind of the same, but obviously a novel, maybe you can read it in a day. You know, if you're going to sort of get up at nine and stay up till midnight and just sort of drink coffee all day long. 
but the movie happens so quickly and you know it might work for you one time and not the next time so uh anyhow that's something that it's I, it's very you know. it's very demanding you know and you can see that now when it comes to these like netflix and hbo series and stuff where they have the space to stretch out a story to you know six episodes and you can yeah. see with things like you ever that the tiger king like yeah. documentary like yeah. which was just it was amazing and it was delightful but it really was stretched out way too thin yeah. like it should have been it should have been edited if it was edited down to two hours yeah. it would have been absolute fucking gold but because that medium allows you to be lazy and to stretch things out it uh, a lot of people ended up just like people who loved it bailed in the middle i don't think i finished it either and there's very you know i haven't there's so many things that i haven't finished it's interesting too now that i mean if you think of the classic time of cinema where you'd have to go to a big dark room and you'd have to watch it with a certain kind of feeling do you know what i mean and i think yep there was a space for movies to work much more successfully in the same kind of way a song will work be much more powerful if you're in the auditorium and the person is delivering it to you than if you hear it on your telephone as you're walking down the street and someone's yelling at you. Its ability to, you know, uh, seduce isn't the word, but its ability to be successful is um, so much more powerful when it's in, you know, whatever, the citadel of cinema. And I think that's kind of changing how we feel about movies and kind of um, the way they work for us. And yeah, I think probably parallel, sadly, yeah. The, 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 the mystery and the magic, it, it does seem to be fading. Um, at least, you know, I, my kind of experience of, of movies is so much tied in to going to the cinema five when I was a young kid, you know, like very, very, <laughs> I went there. Oh. yeah. And, and, and just, you, know, you had to, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I was born before VHS. So I remember VHS coming out and you're going like, what, you can watch a fucking movie at home like that <laughs> and you know and then you can stop it and you know but when you had to go to the cinema five and watch you know apocalypse now when you're like 13 and to just yeah. sort of see that thing and it just blows you away and and i you know i like a lot of things you know, i guess obviously it's tied up with the mystery and the magic that i have of being a 13 year old as well and i'm sure I certainly hope, you know, my son's 14. I certainly hope that he's experiencing kind of mystery and magic that, that is unto his generation. But my feeling for movies is tied up in that and tied up, you know, in watching them in a dark room with a bunch of other people. And, you know, that's just the way it is. And I think the magic that they possess is so much more uh, accessible in, in, in that, in that space. Yeah, I think I completely, I mean, I've, my, my sort of introduction to, to real movies was going to, I would say, especially it was Cinema de Paris, like just right. next to su- Super Sex on, uh, yep. on St. Catherine Street. I used to skip school with my friend Darren and we would go there and he was just already at the age of, you know, at the age of 15 or so, he was already like a hardcore movie buff, like, and he wow. knew and so he was my, my guide and uh, we used to go there and watch you know, movie after movie in the middle of the day and just completely blown away. We saw uh, all the, all the great stuff. And, but when I talk to my students who tend to be 
kind of on between the ages of about 17 and 20, most of them, when they talked to me about a movie that really powerfully affected them, very often they'll, they'll say that they were on shrooms or they were stoned or they were like on ecstasy huh. or something like that. And when they describe their subjective experience of watching that movie, my response, as I've, I've said you know, many times, I'm like, that's how we all used to watch movies, like without any drugs. <laughs> because right. when you're in the, because when you're in the theater, you don't have your, you didn't have your phone out with your fucking notifications going off. You, you weren't like making small talk with people. You weren't, you know, getting up all the time. You were like in there and you had committed to giving this art form your full attention for an hour and a half. And so you would get completely absorbed in it, in that world. And it seems like um, these days, because people of all ages are so just fucking ridiculously, you know, they're watching your movie on their laptop while they've got five other windows open and they're scrolling back and forth and they're talking, you know, on their headset to somebody else. And they're not really giving anything their full attention. And so it seems like increasingly the only way people can have a profound experience with another person or an art form as if some sort of drug is it's like a whole society sure. of people with yeah. adhd right well it's funny there's there's two things that there's a very great clip of david lynch uh talking uh, and you can watch it on the internet and he is talking about someone who told him that uh they had seen uh uh blue velvet and they'd watched it on their phone and he says he says he says to me I know you think you've seen the movie, but you have not seen the movie. <laughs> and he's in a certain way, he's completely correct. They actually haven't seen the movie. They haven't seen it. Um, the, and the other thing I've always, I've particularly, I don't, I don't, I'm sober. I don't smoke or weed anymore, but I think I smoke pot for maybe every day for 35, maybe 40 years. And since I no longer smoke marijuana, my relationship to television has profoundly changed. I used to watch an infomercial and feel that I was getting some insight into the American psyche. Do you know what I mean? Like really yes. watch it for like an hour and go like, they'd be going, oh my God, this is really profound. Like, and then, and, and now I'll watch- Look at guy's lips. Yeah. They're so weird. Yeah. yeah. And now I'll watch and just be like, I can't watch this. Has, there's absolutely nothing here. <laughs> and yeah, I think there's something about uh, marijuana, which I'm, I'm not against. You know, marijuana is great. You know, more power to you. But I think there's something about it and the ascendancy of television. I think that they're very much interrelated phenomenons um, because dope pot allows you, you could watch, you could watch 90 hours of TV if you were stoned. I mean, you could. You could you could watch yeah, yeah. really good. You could watch all of it really in one sitting. You know, if there's enough Cheetos, and I, you know, I think that's uh, it's just kind of what's happening. But I, you know, I think marijuana is. Yeah, I think you're completely correct. There is a maybe a, and it wasn't that in um, Brave New World. Isn't there sort of the, a the soma between feelies and soma that they they are done yeah. together? Um, yeah. yeah. There's a new, they, I think on Amazon Prime, they, they have a Brave New World, the show. And oh, really? It's, uh, yeah, it's really. It's Just really what Huxley wants. Sure. Yeah, it's really, really good. <laughs> I mean, good? It's, oh, cool. 
it's um it especially if you if you watch it just watch the first couple episodes and then i it trails off i mean not as horribly as tiger king but mm-hmm. it trails off um pretty quickly after that and the episodes are are good but it's sort of like a bad marriage like you're just sticking around because you remember right. the good times like yeah. I, the first couple episodes and especially the first episode is fucking mind-blowing because hmm. they really they've done what a good screenwriter should do and they've made a script that is not just it's sort of taking huxley's vision and putting it into today to everything that we know now and so you know the, the characters are totally against um they're totally against the monogamous family they're totally against privacy mm-hmm. individualism and any kind of like thinking about the big picture you're supposed to be totally absorbed in the moment all the time mm-hmm. and and they have these pills that they're on all the time which uh, make that possible and sort of get rid mm-hmm. of any bad feelings and just make like- sure that you are always like you said, watching the infomercial, so that you are always just absolutely um, consumed by bullshit, by yeah. trivia. Sure. Yeah. And you never feel, you know, unhappy about it, right? And I think one of the things that is, um, one of the things that's really fun about your movie, Death of the Ladies Man, and also Leonard Cohen's writing in general, is that there's this, this, constant acknowledgement that um, the minutiae of life and trivia is it's not enough it's not it's like and the, part of the reason that the character behaves in these like super self-destructive ways is because he recognizes that it's not enough and he's he's not gonna settle you know but i mean he doesn't know he doesn't seem to know what what he should do but at least he knows that what's on offer is bullshit you know? Sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely. That. I think there's also, uh, you know, feeling good isn't the most important thing in the whole world. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think, yeah. Feeling is. Feeling is probably, you know, the most important thing, um, whether it's good or bad, just to be able to actually experience whatever is going on, you know, is, is probably, again, it's, 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 it's kind of what we were talking about earlier or kind of throughout is, the struggle, you know, and I think this is in the movie a little bit, the struggle is, is, you know, what's reality, you know, what to, to, to actually get to know what's really going on in your own life, I think is, is the kind of everyday struggle. You know, what am I really feeling? What's really happening here? What's really going on with the people around me? Yeah. There's a, there's a, a fantasy is so fantasy is so ubiquitous. It's so, and it's, it, you know, the one thing I was thinking a little bit about when we were making this movie and, you know, is I think going to be the great challenge of the next, you know, whatever generation or, or, you know, part of humanity is just to, how to separate fantasy from reality, you know, whether it's through drugs or whether it's through misinformation or, or, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, that, that, that struggles is just going to get more and more difficult and more and more pronounced, the more powerful the tools of distraction are. And I think what we're seeing is our, our tools of distraction are, you know, hypo turboing, whatever there's some, some term for that. When things start to go really fast, like the power, the ability to distract ourselves is, 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 is just going to get more and more intense. Yeah. There was, I, I'm trying to remember, there was this poem that he had 
that Leonard Cohen had, it, it was one of the last ones he wrote, which was exactly what you're talking about, where he, he's talking about, you know, being appreciating all of these like everyday things in his environment when he's uh, in LA. And mm-hmm. you think it sounds like sort of Matt Bussonette watching an infomercial while stoned or something. Uh-huh. And then he, <laughs> He has like, you know, as if to illustrate your point that he was also a stand-up comedian, he he then ends it, you know, I am thankful for my new antidepressant. Like, it's, it's kind of, I, he just, you know what yeah. I'm talking about? I know the poem. I Just when you said the last line, I can't remember the, you know, the body of it. But yeah, that. that. Yeah, it's, it's where he's sort of, and he's, so at first you think, okay, this is going to be a typical, like, oh, I'm seeing the beauty in the everyday life and I'm seeing like all this stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, that's textbook romanticism. And then then you kind of get to the last line and it's the punchline that just casts aspersions on all of the previous insights. Like, well, yeah, I'm I'm just high. (laughs) I mean, like that's when you, I mean, you could totally, uh, if you're not comfortable talking about this, but I I was thinking about it when, when I was watching the movie, but I mean, what in terms of your consciousness what was the what was the big change in in sort of going sober and going from like being you know smoking weed and all that stuff like was it was it boring was it more interesting was it more slow fast like what i i think it's more interesting it's hard to know now because it's been like 7 7 years now the the first year i got sober was was super difficult. I think because I started using when I was twelve, and I mm-hmm. when I was forty six, something like that. So, and you know, from about fifteen on, and certainly by eighteen, it's like it's every day. So you are essentially not feeling all the things that have happened in that for that entire time period, and then you stop, and then you feel them all. So that first year uh, was super intense, um, and you know, it was great. Though. I mean, I you know, I started meditating. That's something I'm super interested in now. And again, it, it's I do kind of feel like the 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 struggle, the 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 goal is to get as close to you can as you can to reality, and, and to and to be cool with that. And that really seems to me to be at least the point to, to, to kind of where, where I'm at. Um, and it's more interesting. I mean, I think the thing about getting high, at least for me after a long time was it's just numbing sameness, to be honest with you at the end. Yeah. It's it just, it really, whatever, whatever was working when it started and it, there were so many good times. You know, there's so many things that were fun and weird and enjoyable. And I don't deny that. But that stuff really falls away, at least for me. And there was just kind of this lack of growth. And um, yeah, it got, you know, it wasn't alive, to be honest. Yeah. Did yeah. that make sense? And oh, when yeah, I stopped sense. getting high, you know, I was like, I was a dad by that point. I had a young son. And um, just to be present for that, you know, to kind of be around for that whole thing, the good, the bad. You know, I went through divorce. Um, you know, and just kind of show up for that and really kind of be there and, you know, not try and duck out on it and try and figure out why it happened and how, uh, you know, you might kind of be better going forward. 
you know, yeah. just simple stuff to be honest with you. And um, let me put it this way. When I was using, I could not imagine a wor- in a world where I wouldn't be getting high. Like it just didn't, if you sort of brought that to me, I, just, I would have been like, what, you know, it's foreign language. And now I, I just can't imagine getting high. To be honest with you. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's the last thing uh, going on for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, there you know, go. I noticed That's that with, with guys, with guys that I grew up with in Verdun who, uh, who were like really hardcore, you know, out keys or users mm-hmm. or something like that. It's funny that you say that because I, I don't know if that ever really occurred to me until you were just talking, but it is true that like some of those guys, like I meet them and it seems as if like they've been caught in a time warp yeah. because they're, you know, I talk to them and they're, you know, they're like, they're my age, you know, sort of mid forties kind of thing, late forties, mm-hmm. but like, you hang out with them and they're still telling exactly the same stories that they were telling you when they were 25, 18, and they're still talking about the same stuff. They listen, they still listen to exactly the same music. Yeah. They still, and it's as if they, um, they they were so emotionally stunted or something. They, they're stuck at a particular age. So yeah, that is an interesting point that it kind of maybe. It, it, I think it freezes you. I mean, all right, listen, I'm not going to generalize about other people, but what I can tell you is that it definitely froze me. And for better or worse, we are living in a world that's based on change. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to stop change through whatever medium you're trying to stop it from, like whether it's make America great again or whether mm-hmm. it's buy every day, like if your goal is to prevent change, I, I, you know, you're in the wrong place. That's an uphill battle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and you're not going to win. Like, it's it just, you're not going to win. And so, again, if that's the reality, if that happens to be, you know, the, uh, the time and place or the kind of world that I'm living in, one that is predicated on change, I'm more interested in kind of, you know, being part of that than sort of, uh, you know, wishing it never happened or trying to stop it or trying to, you know, um, anesthetize myself from that experience because you know whatever people you know change people don't like change they find it's uh unsettling they find it scary you know it's disturbing to them they like things the way that they are and uh yeah, yeah i'm uh i'm kind of more in favor in uh, you know the way things are going to be or just you know or whatever's happening well for for a sober guy you have the like the best description of heroin that i have encountered in all of fiction is in this movie i mean i've never done heroin but mm-hmm. i have a lot of friends who've gone down that rabbit hole and there's one point in the movie where the you know, his daughter's boyfriend you know she says you know so what's this heroin like that you're doing he says well it's like god has a velvet tongue and he's licking you all over because he loves you so much and you're so fucking awesome i mean that was like absolute poetry that was one of the best lines it it's such a great line and i I immediately i sent that line to a couple of people that i know who have had problems with heroin in the past and i'm like i think i may have just encountered the best description (laughs) 
of heroin ever. And I was, the response I got from all four of them was, holy shit, that is so right on. <laughs> God has a velvet tongue and he's, and you just picture God like this big cat, or maybe a tiger who's actually a bodybuilder. But they like, I just like licking you all over. Like, where did you come up with that? Ah, uh, you know, just at the typewriter. You're just sitting there. But I mean, you know, listen, there's a reason why people shoot heroin. They're not idiots. You know, yeah. people are really good. There's a reason. There's a very doing it because it sucks. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. The same reason why, you know, I, I get it. You know, I know why people drink. I get it. You know, I don't believe me. I understand. It's just whether, you know, long term, God's going to keep looking you with that tongue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably not. That's yeah, probably going to turn into something much yeah, more malevolent. A little tragic. You know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's that that great scene in um, Drugstore Cowboy where Matt Damon's character, not Matt Damon, Matt Dillon, yeah. his character, he's talking about like why, uh, what's really hard about getting sober. And he yeah. said, you know, people people who've never gone through it, they think that what's hard is the withdrawal symptoms and stuff like that. He goes, bullshit. That's not hard. Sure, you feel like you've got a, the worst flu ever and you're like puking and you're sweating and you're like all that stuff. He goes, but that passes. And then comes the really difficult thing, which is what you were talking about before, uh, that you just find regular life so unbelievably tedious and boring. Yeah. And you have to find a way to be okay with regular reality. But I think the lines about the day to day tying of your shoes. Is it, is something like yeah, that it's, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, been like 20 yeah. movies 20 years since i've seen the movie but i just i remember that line and i was like that's like the day-to-day <laughs> tying of your shoes and so having to you know find a way to be comfortable with that well that's the whole challenge of life you have to tie your shoes right <laughs> so you're either going to learn to like tying your shoes or just enjoy the experience of it or you're going to get fucking high and tie your shoes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But one yes. way or another, you're tying your fucking shoes. So, and it just got easier for me to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, that is an incredibly wonderful place to end. Um, I think I just wanted to sort of maybe as a, a final question, you mentioned that you've written this new novel. Um, can you sort of maybe give us a, a sneak peek? Tell us a little bit about it. That, you know, who knows? I got to go back and read it again. It was fine. I, re- I wrote it over uh, during COVID. So I didn't want to write anything um, real because it was such a strange time. So it's sort of a, an odd fantasy thing that, that just sort of came rolling out. Um, and that's all I'll really say about it. Um, what yeah, I, I am, I'm, writing, I'm writing a new movie right now. That, that's sort of what I can talk a little bit more about. Okay. So what, what's that about? It's set in Montreal. Okay. Uh, and it's, I think, quite a simple film, actually. It's, it's sort of a very kind of simple film. Uh, it's about a guy who, who comes back to town and has to um, put his life back together. But it's, it's like a Tom Waits movie. So uh, oh, wow. I'm kind of interested in, uh, you know, it, it, it's probably the one where, we, you know, we were talking a little bit about the story and um, whether you just believe in the whole enterprise or whatever. And this one's like very much falling on story, you know, like uh, in that way, Tom Waits song sort of, sort of art, you know, and they're like a very sort of yeah. simple kind of things. And so um, I'm, I'm excited about it. And then, you know, it's always good to come back to Montreal. So. 
Yeah. And it, it also is like, I think um, I can see in a lot of your stuff, the sort of the spirit of punk rock, you know, like where Ramones sort of looked at uh, other, they looked at Led Zeppelin and all these like sixties rock bands and they looked at what they were doing at the end of the, you know, with Coda and, and, and through the outdoor. And they thought like, okay, rock is getting, way too self-indulgent these seven minute drum solos we're going to bring back the two minute song right and like mm-hmm. that's i like that you know, your your scripts have that sort of quality of let's really try and get it all in <laughs> in this like <laughs> short yeah, time, yeah. rather than like <laughs> stretching it you know when you said that you know that the race car analogy that you know we want movies to be i think that's uh, you know, the genre has these kind of requirements, which are often just really predictable and self-indulgent and you don't, uh, you don't do that. But anyway, thank you so much for making this movie. It, it was like, it brought me uh, so much joy. <laughs> like it, I, I really, I enjoyed it a great deal. And I, I encourage all of our listeners to go and uh, watch it um, on Google Play costs you like uh, it costs you five bucks. It's uh, the best five bucks you'll you'll spend. It's amazing. Yeah, and it, and thanks. It, yeah, it's out. It's like out, out iTunes, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's it's out on all those sort of the various platforms that exist out in our new world. But I want to thank <laughs> you. It was super fun to talk, uh, and um, you know, it's always so interesting to talk to someone who's you know engage with the movie on such a thoughtful level so i really appreciate you well next time you're in montreal let's uh let's go for a walk on the mountain i would love to <laughs> all right take care all right, man have a great day bye, bye.